yeah, man, Henry was just such a such a gift. What a great surprise. And then it like hit me. I'm like, we just had a little boy. And so that was a really, yeah, that was a really sweet moment for us. And then Ryan went out and told our family and they just went berserk. So um, Henry was the first grandson on my family side. So everyone was crying and screaming and they were just so excited. So that's how, that's how Mr. Henry came into this world. We didn't have a name picked out for him by that point. Um, we liked the name Henry and then we saw him. He was just this cute little old man looking thing. And we're like, it's gonna be Henry. We like Henry, it's a good strong name. So that's how we named him. And it's good that this woman, uh, Brittany, it's good that she gave her son, Henry, a strong name because life uh, it would ask him to be strong. Brittany and Henry, mother and son. That's the center of today's episode. Hi, this is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would, and you are listening to the Because I Said I Would podcast, where we share the life stories that come with the promises that people make, the ones they keep, and the broken ones too. In today's episode, you're going to meet Brittany, She's a real estate agent from Denver, a loving wife, and a super mom of four beautiful kids. Uh, Some of the challenges that Brittany faced actually came and started at a young age, pushed her to grow up pretty quickly. But it also armed her with a strength, a courage to fight for her family, set a foundation to live through it all with hope. I think we all need that. This is her promise story. I was actually born in the city of Denver. And then in sixth grade, we moved to Arvada, which is a suburb of Denver. It's about eight miles northwest. And so that's where we raise our family now. So we are still in Arvada. We didn't get very far. So I've been in the area, uh, gosh, for, you know, 20 plus years. Growing up, Brittany had a pretty good life. She grew up in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado. She attended high school, was involved in sports, hanging out with friends, typical teenage stuff, right? And soon she was lucky enough to, to fall in love. Like from a storybook, it was love at first sight when she met her husband, Ryan. My husband, Ryan, and I met um, back in December of 1999. And what ended up happening was we were having a senior camping trip. So we both attended the same high school, but our paths never crossed. But then we had a camping trip over our winter break and that's where I met Ryan. So they invited out the whole senior class. And then at that moment, we came, talked, just kind of hung out the whole weekend. And then from then on, just dated. We dated for quite a while. Um, and then we were married in 2004. I knew when I met Ryan, I was going to marry him, as cliche as that sounds. This was something that he's always going to make me laugh. He's always going to be there for me. And he's just a really good listener. And he, you know, he loved me too. Like he adored me. So he always made me feel so special when I was around him. And he still does. This glowing couple was a great match for each other. They spent the remainder of their high school years dating and planning for their future. But uh, the future is hard to predict. What was about to happen, Brittany and Ryan uh, couldn't really plan for. Right after we graduated, so we graduated from high school May of 2000. 
Ryan ended up going on another camping trip to like McConaughey with some friends. And they cut they cut the trip short because Ryan was had high, high fever, spiking fevers. So came home and by this point, um, him and I were together for a little bit and he just, something wasn't right with him. And so we ended up taking him to the ER and they couldn't figure out what was going on and couldn't, you know, nothing, nothing was working. And so he was terribly sick for a while, put him on a bunch of antibiotics and then it just kind of kept getting worse month after month, you know, fevers went away, but then he'd have just different things. He had these weird mouth sores that nobody could ever figure out. Um, and so they they test him for everything you can imagine from AIDS to leukemia to blood disorders and everything was no, 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 no. Over the course of time, Brittany did what was hard to do. She stood by Ryan's side as they went to doctor after doctor, running test after test to figure out what was wrong. The doctors ended up diagnosing Ryan with a rare blood disorder. Uh, It's called uh, ITP. And so finally, finally, when we met the, one of the last times with this oncologist, she said, hmm, you're pretty unusual. And they told me you have this condition called ITP. And so ITP means, it was like idiopathic venous thromponia or something like that. And so basically what it means is unknown, unknown bleeding disorder. And so it just kind of started out kind of rough for us, you know, kind of fighting for his health. Even as all of this is going, you know, life doesn't stop. At this time, Ryan was getting his degree in business management, Brittany, her degree in business marketing. They both worked, they went to school full time. All the while, this young couple had to grapple, to grip, to understand and accommodate this new news of Ryan's condition. But even in all of that, this illness, it couldn't stop these two from making a a pretty big promise uh, to get married. How we kind of got to the altar was, you know, I remember Ryan's last biopsy for his bone marrow. They wouldn't let me be in the room. And so they wouldn't let me be in the room because we weren't legally married. And I remember giving the doctor just a little bit of peace in my mind about it and just saying, you know, this is complete, you know, BS, you know, why I don't understand because it's just basically a piece of paper. So we had kind of gotten into an argument, Ryan and I, um, a week before Valentine's Day, just a couple weeks after the biopsy. And I had said, like, what's going on here? What's going on here? Like, are you ever going to marry me? Do you even want to marry me? We own properties together. I can't even be in the room with the doctors. Brittany may have gotten a little ahead of herself on this one. And he just <laughs> looked at me and said, Britt, you ruin everything. You ruin everything. He's like, I was going to ask you to marry me on Valentine's Day. You could have just waited five more days. <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I think, you know, it was kind of all of that emotion and all of that stuff. So I think by the time we actually got married, we had kind of already had our fill of, you know, for better or for worse and sickness and health. I mean, we're both young college broke, but managed to scrape up enough money to, you know, buy our first house. So we had a pretty early level of commitment towards one another without having to say vows. Getting married is probably the biggest promise you can make. I mean, I guess it could be debated, but it's a terribly difficult, it's a huge commitment. I mean, think about it. For better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, we are talking about a forever promise. 
Uh, I know it's kind of weird, but I'm actually an ordained minister myself. You know, you can become that just with a couple of clicks of buttons on the internet, pay a thing or two. Um, but because of being the founder of Because I Said I Would, uh, people ask me to help them with that commitment to, to be the officiant. And I always recommend that people actually make their own promise, write their own vows. Don't just take something out of the box. I mean, this is one of the most important things that you will ever say in your entire life. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't parts of those standard lines, those wedding vows that aren't beautiful, of course. I mean, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. Brittany and Ryan know exactly what those last words mean, in sickness and in health. Not only does it affect them and their relationship, but it has an effect on your decision to even have children. I mean, what could Ryan pass on? That's something you have to think about. I asked Brittany if Ryan's condition made it, I guess, a hard decision to even have kids. Um, absolutely. So my biggest fear was that she she would be born with, you know, ITP or something to that effect. And this is something, you know, and this is partly why we had waited as long as we had waited to have kids. So Hayden was born in 2008. We were married in 2004. And so it was a lot of, you know, going back and forth with doctors and what's the likelihood of, you know, our daughter being born with something similar. And we were assured, you know, by the hematologist that realistically it's, it's really not, you know, familiar, you know, they, they, they don't really see a link with it. A lot of the link with ITP is something that the mother would pass on to the child, but they really never saw a link with the father passing on to a child. Even with the knowledge that most likely this disease, uh, it couldn't be passed on, the young couple had many unknowns to think about. There was one thing they did know, uh, seeing their children suffer, it just wasn't an option for them. I think, you know, for us, I mean, if it was definitely a highly likely situation that it would have been passed on, I don't, I don't think there's any way Ryan and I would have done that. You know, we, um, we spent a lot of time in an infusion center and it's quite different being, you know, in your 20s, watching all of these people around you who at this point are significantly older than you, struggling, struggling in daily tasks. You know, whether whether they have no hair or no motion or watching them be alone or their veins. And, you know, I remember Ryan would get poked all the time and they would pop his veins. And so even just the physicality of going through treatment, it was it was just a lot to bear, you know, in your 20s. And so I, I think both of us probably would agree that that was never something that we would ever wish upon a child of ours ever. So after many years of double, triple checking with doctors, they ultimately decided to have a child. So along came their first daughter, Hayden. So I remember when she was first born, like the first thing was I wanted to know if, you know, she had petechiae, if she was covered in bruises, because um, that would be a good indicator. And she wasn't, she was perfect. She was healthy. She was, you know, full term, like just a perfect baby. And so we we were kind of you know spoiled with that and then we had gotten pregnant you know again with Allie and same thing you know Allie came 21 months later and just perfect and just great and so we kind of after we had the two girls we really never would have imagined that any children after that point would have been ill yeah so Brittany Ryan they have two daughters 
Hayden, we just heard about, 11 years old now, and Allie, nine years old, and they would end up having two sons, Henry and baby Austin. The four years it took them to decide to have children before any of their kids came along, it was time well spent. They thoroughly consulted with doctors on this, and the decision seemed to be working out. I mean, Henry, Austin come along, both healthy. To say that Brittany and Ryan were relieved with their four glowing, healthy children, I mean, that's an understatement, but that relief was short-lived. Something wasn't quite right with Henry. Um, We did have some challenges with him early on. Um, He wasn't crawling when all the other kids were crawling. He wasn't sitting up when all the other kids were sitting up. So we had delays um, and we had some medical delays and we kind of knew it, you know, um, going into it. And I just, you know, remember being like, oh, I just wish this little guy would just sit up, you know, and he didn't start walking till realistically about a month before his second birthday. Brittany didn't know what to make of Henry's delays. So she did what most people do. She sought out the advice of family and friends, took Henry to a speech therapist, but there were no red flags. Even the doctor said there was no cause for concern. It's it's so funny. And, you know, sometimes parents are the worst of that because they're like, well, my kid can do that and my kid can't do that. And then you throw the doctors in and the doctors are like, oh, your kid's not doing this. Oh, but it's okay. You know, and then you always have people who are like, oh, well, don't worry about that. My son didn't do this or, you know, so you just have all these kind of weird like emotions when your kid is not hitting milestones. And so the doctors weren't really like overly concerned, you know, and, you know, I kind of kept hearing, well, he's not going to crawl in kindergarten. Like he'll figure it out. He'll work. He'll walk, you know, so don't, don't put too emphasis on it, but we really need early intervention. And so it's kind of what we did, but it was more relaxed. And then I'd get a lot of moms that would say, oh, he's just a boy. Boys are so much slower at that stuff. Boys are just so much slower. Boys are so much slower. And we really didn't know the difference because we had two little girls that were complete opposites, you know? So we're like, okay. So just kind of went with the flow, but none of it, like at no point were we ever like alarmed or thought, wow, this is, you know, foretelling of what's about to happen. So a few years ago, it was Mother's Day weekend, and all the kids came down with the flu. Brittany's two daughters, they recovered quickly, but Henry wasn't getting better. The girls had had a stomach bug that whole week before. So they had been sick, and Henry was doing okay, you know, and then Saturday rolled around, And he still wasn't keeping anything down. By this point, the girls were all healthy again. And then that Sunday for Mother's Day, he he really wasn't keeping anything down. Nothing. So wouldn't keep down water, nothing. And I could just tell, you know, he's getting a little bit dehydrated. So Ryan said, all right, I'm going to take him into the ER, just see what's going on because he's been going on for four days now. So Ryan took him in to the hospital and um, they looked at him. And they, they handed him a popsicle, and Henry ate a popsicle. And they watched him for about an hour, and then they just said, oh, just keep giving him popsicles, he's fine, he just has a stomach bug. And so I'm kind of like, well, that's weird, because I thought, well, maybe they should give him an IV, or I don't know, you know, I don't know. You know, you're a doctor, we trust you, whatever, you know? So didn't really think anything of it. Despite what her gut was telling her, that there was something more going on, more than just the flu, they took Henry home, but things got worse. 
that night, that night was horrible. It was horrible. And so that night, Henry just moaned and moaned and moaned and moaned. And both Ryan and God bless Ryan, Ryan, you know, was just right there with him, like holding him. It's okay, bud. It's okay. And so we really just thought it's, you know, his stomach probably hurts. He hasn't been eating. He didn't want anything. And so kind of just got through the night, um, got up, kind of normal day start. Um, I I had appointments that morning at a closing in the morning and then Ryan had to be at his construction site, you know, later. And so I just said, you stay with Henry in the morning. Um, I'll go do my thing and then we'll flip flop. And that's kind of what we did. So went and um, while I was with clients, Ryan was texting me and he's like, I think something's up with Henry. He's like, he's now throwing up something dark green. And he's like, I, I'm Googling it. And I think, I think it's vile. And so I'm like, oh gosh. And so then I'm like in full panic mode. I'm calling our pediatrician. And so I left her a message and this is kind of all happening as I'm headed back home. And so I leave her a message, I get home and I look at him and I look, I look at Henry and he was completely limp, like completely limp. And he couldn't even keep his head up. His body was kind of hunched over. A panicked mother rushed her young son to the hospital. I get in in the room um, in the ER and I had, you know, one nurse that didn't leave our side. And so they're taking him back and forth and taking him, you know, doing, you know, a, a CT scan on him and a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the nurses had looked at me and she goes, do you not see that in him? And I said, see what? And she goes, he's completely yellow. And Henry's has this blanket, it's his favorite blanket. It was made by a dear friend and it's it's mustard yellow. And we go nowhere without our kids' blankets ever. And so when she said that, like I looked at him and I'm like, he is yellow. I mean, he's yellow. And so then I'm like, well, what does that mean? And then, you know, I'm panicking and, you know, and I think everyone was kind of in that same boat. Like, I, I can't believe you didn't see that, but we didn't see it. And so he gets scanned, he does that whole thing, and we're waiting. You know that phrase that people say, uh, you know, this was news that no mother would want to hear, right? You know, people say that. Uh, that's just a phrase to some people, a saying. Uh, to Brittany, it's a moment in her life. Because what the doctor said next, it was that moment. And then the doctor came in and said, you know, I you know, I have some bad news and we need to admit you guys to the PICU. He's going up to um, ICU right now. His hemoglobin is uh, 2.8. And when they said that, like I lost it. And um, just kind of being, being in the whole world with blood with Ryan, I got really used to numbers. I got really used to, you know, platelet counts, red blood cell count, you know, white, white blood cell count. His belly ribbon was ridiculously high, um, so he was jaundice, and so it was just kind of this whole world of like he's sick, you know, he's sick. The amount of medical terminology that Brittany understands is honestly something that I remember almost the most about this conversation. I know that sounds weird, but she could rattle off all these terms that I had never heard of, but she spoke as if she said them every day. Uh, You have to understand, though, that remember what Brittany does. She's a realtor. 
You know, she doesn't work in the medical profession, but that's how seriously she takes all of this. And even in our conversation, she had mentioned that Henry's hemoglobin was at 2.8. I don't know what that means, and neither maybe perhaps do you, but she would explain on this call why 2.8 is life-threatening for little Henry. Henry's age, his hemoglobin should be anywhere between probably 11.5 and 13. So he is critically, critically ill at this point, meaning that we are at the point where we have organs shut down. And that was that was the worry. Um, his organs are about to shut down. And so it was a huge panic of we need we need to get this kid some blood. We need to get some iron back in his blood. We need oxygen in his blood, all this stuff so that we, you know, aren't aren't looking at a catastrophic, you know, failure here. And you could actually see when he's getting blood, just the color coming back into his little body, you know, so you could just see the difference immediately, you know, what what blood is doing to him. So it was kind of like a night and day difference, you know, to see that. And that night and day difference would help the doctors draw a quick conclusion. After these blood transfusions that Henry received, after they proved to work, it only made sense to discharge him. And so the doctors had said, you know, I think he has this condition called her- hereditary spherocytosis. And basically what it is, is when your body fights a virus, sometimes your body starts attacking itself. And to fix it, you just give him blood and you're good to go. And so that was kind of the diagnosis that we had gotten. So we were in ICU for a couple of days, discharged. So we were discharged. Um, we were home for Henry's second birthday and then sat that Friday you know, something didn't look right in his diaper. It was just a really weird orange blood red. And I called the hematologist and they said, oh, sometimes after, you know, transfusions, it can look like that. And so I brought him into his pediatrician that Saturday, which was his birthday party that morning and showed this diaper to the pediatrician. And he said, no. And he said, I'm calling your hematologist. You need to get back to the ER. And so that's what we did. So I'm on the phone with the hematologist and she just said, oh God, I think it's his, I think it's his kidneys. And so we rushed him back thinking that he was in kidney failure and he was in kidney failure. And so um, that's when they just basically told us, you're not going anywhere for a while until we figure this out. And so I just remember kind of looking at the doctors and being like, well, what do we do next? What do we do next? What do we do next? Because this was kind of outside of our comfort zone. We had not, you know, Ryan had never went into any type of a kidney failure or anything like that. And so right away, you know, I said, I think he has what Ryan has. I think he has autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And very quickly, no, that's not what he has. We've already tested him for that. He does not have that. I'm like, well, what does he have? Like, what does he have? And I think more or less, my focus was on a diagnosis. I just wanted a diagnosis because I wanted to know how to fix it. We we were at the hospital for 40 days um, and Henry was dependent on blood. So he ended up with um, 19 blood transfusions by the time we actually could truly figure out his diagnosis. And so we had two other misdiagnoses in that time span. So we were told that Henry had a condition called PNH, um, which is a cancer. And then um, they gave us a terminal diagnosis um, of atypical 
hemolytic uremic syndrome, we call it AHAS for short. And I, I remember them telling us this, and I just kind of remember looking at them saying, you don't know what the heck you're talking about, you know? And I just was shaking my head. I didn't, I didn't believe it. And Ryan did didn't you, believe it either. Did you voice that? Or did you just Oh, yeah. That? Oh, yeah. We were, we were very vocal throughout the whole thing. We were very vocal. Brittany was now in a position that most parents would deem a nightmare. She had just been told her little two-year-old son either has cancer or terminal illness that would require blood transfusions every eight days just to keep him alive. For anyone who's listening to this, who's had a family member diagnosed with a terminal illness, for anybody who's listening to this who's had a loved one uh, die, you find yourself in a moment in life where you are asking questions uh, that, that just don't have answers. What did I do? You know, what, what did I do for my child to go through this? And one morning, driving to the hospital, I lost it, like lost it. And Austin, poor Austin's in the back seat listening to this. And I am screaming at the top of my lungs to God, just questioning everything. Like, why would you do this? Let, you know, let me take his place. Let me take his place. Like, how dare you? And I even remember like little, little things would pop up. Like I would listen to a song and it would talk about like burying your child. And I just was kind of like, I'm so confused. Like, is this God telling me to prepare my heart for this? Because I I didn't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's what's what's happening here. And so a, a really wise mentor of mine, I talked to her. And I think what I just wanted is I just wanted hope from somebody. And so when I talked to her, she's like, no, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. And she didn't know, like, you know, she didn't know if it was or wasn't. But I just needed to hear that that wasn't going to happen. And then I remember getting to the hospital and seeing Ryan there. And I told him, I'm like, I just had it out. Like, I had it out with God. I'm so angry. I'm so upset. And I'm like, what if we lose him? And Ryan looked at me and he's like, that's not going to happen, Britt. That's not going to happen. He's like, I know it. I feel it. It's not going to happen. And so... That, for me, just kind of took it out, you know, like it took off all the pressure. You know, unfortunately, we have friends that have lost children. You know, it it does happen. We all lose people we love, you know, and so it's definitely a reality. But at the end of the day, if we do walk that road, I know I will see him again one day. And I know that I have a really good support of people around me that will lift me up when I can't stand, you know? There comes a time in many of our promises where there really, uh, there is no choice but hope. I mean, what is the other option except what? We don't know yet. What's going to happen is unknown. And so if we let go of that hope, if we let go of that, we let go of options. Because hope makes us think, it makes us believe, it makes us explore what's possible, it makes us keep fighting. Yes, there is a point where you do have to let go. You have to accept what fate has handed you. I'm not advocating to to be in this mental loop where you deny what's in front of you, but we have to hold on to hope until that day is forced on us. And not a moment sooner. 
Brittany had what she needed to move past this despair and hopelessness that she was feeling for her young son because of the support of those around her. She at least knew her son didn't have cancer, and most importantly, she believed. She believed that he was going to make it through this, so she called a doctor's meeting, and she demanded answers. So we had called for a doctor's meeting, um, and so we had every single specialty there that has seen, you know, Henry, which, you know, is our kidney doctor, our immunologist, our hematologist, his pediatric doctor, and we just kind of hashed it all out. Everyone was just really, you know, what the heck is going on? And so we just had kind of like a whole, what the heck moment, you know, like, what are we missing? And soon an answer came. A doctor friend of mine emailed me an article about a, a, a person that had a very rare antibody. It's called an IgA. And in walks the hematologist. And she sits down and she said, I've been thinking about this. And I think we need to do what we call a super Coombs test because I wonder if Henry doesn't have this rare antibody that we can't detect. And so the thing was, Henry had been tested several times for a Coombs test. And basically a Coombs test will tell you if this is autoimmune or not autoimmune. And so the Coombs kept coming back negative, meaning this is not autoimmune. This is nothing to do autoimmune. And so that was kind of the difference where Ryan did have a positive Coombs test. So we knew right away with him it was autoimmune. And so this super Coombs test basically came to light and um, of course it was over Memorial Day weekend so the lab was closed and there's two labs in the United States that do this so it was like the longest four days we had to wait for it and then the phone call came we got a call from the doctor that Tuesday afternoon and she said you're never going to believe it but he's positive he has an IgA antibody Um, he tested positive for supercombs and for us it was so like Oh, impactful in the sense that we knew it, it gave us validation. And what happened at that moment is it changes the course of treatment. We knew that it probably would be manageable at this point. And he, you know, he wasn't going to have to get treatments every eight days like he was before, you know. So it was, it was pretty awesome, I'll be honest. So I don't just want to roll over the fact that we just heard good news about Henry. Obviously, that is the most important thing. But I can't, I guess I can't listen to what she just said and not think the following. That doctor called and said, you're never going to believe this? What do you mean you're never, never going to believe this? Brittany's been saying this thing the whole time, that it, that it was going to be the same diagnosis that Ryan had, that that made the most amount of sense. And so that's how I know, like, Brittany is a, I don't know, a person of grace. I don't know how to say it, but she she doesn't hold grudges like that. She knows that these people are trying to do a good job, but at the end of the day, you know, mama knows best, right? She was right the entire time. That final diagnosis, it was Brittany's first diagnosis. And for little Henry, that means that he, that the family, they could finally breathe. Some people say that raising a toddler, that time of life, it's the most difficult. Some wish they could skip it, right? Yeah, but not for Brittany. I bet she would give anything to see her little boy run around playing, jumping, anything to get him out of that hospital bed. And now that time had finally come. You know, he's walking and 
He's talking and um, he's he's your typical little three-year-old. He'll be four in May um, and he goes to his little preschool classes and yeah, and he's, he's just doing great. And now we're at the point where we're going every other month for blood draws and we have not since, you know, the hospital, we haven't had a bad blood draw yet. So, yeah. Because of Brittany's experience with this illness, and I guess I mean that twice, almost losing her husband, almost losing her son, she dedicated a promise to giving life. But it kind of comes around in a way that's not entirely intuitive. Her promise is to lose 20 pounds. Now, this is one of the most common commitments that people make, actually. You know, when you look at a New Year's resolution, you look at the top 10 most common commitments that people make in a year, and, and that's going to be on it, right? Lose weight. But how does that connect to any of this? Uh, it's because if she does that, she will be a healthier person. Uh, healthier people, they carry healthier organs. And so when the moment comes, when it's her time to go, when she dies, uh, those will be ready for somebody uh, like Henry, for somebody like Ryan, for somebody like me, or maybe someone like you. You know, I, I have seen it firsthand. Um, and unfortunately, we have never been on the receiving end of organs, right? Um, blood, of course, both Ryan and Henry have received blood. Um, but we have watched, you know, three families that we know lose children. And so those three losses saved six other children, you know? And so we have just kind of seen a small piece of that hope that we talk about um, to those families that have been on the receiving end. Um, and it's, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable what a little bit of good can do. You know, we, one of my friends had just listened to her son's heartbeat um, through the little guy that received her son's heart. And that was just so beautiful and closure and to think like, yeah, life's not fair. It's not fair. But to think that something good came out of something so bad and so ugly, you know, that that to me, like that's what organ donation is about. It's about, you know, being the healthiest we can possibly be. So that way, you know, when my time comes, I can save however many families I can, you know, to have that hope for them and to have that love and to have to have that, like to have that life. You know, it's organ donation is life giving. Um, and that's exactly what it is. You're giving somebody life that otherwise isn't going to have it. According to the United States government information on organ donation and transplantation, in 2017, there were 34,770 organs transplanted. To put that number into context on how big it is and how much weight it holds, do you know that 40,100, almost you know, a similar number, 40,100 people die in car crashes in the United States? That means that the number of people that are saved by organ donations are almost as high as the number of people who die in all car crashes. And so I don't know if those numbers mean anything to you, but how about how about this last one? In 2017, a number may be higher or lower now, but let's say just 2017, there were 114,000 men, women, and children waiting on an organ donation list. I don't know how to feel about these numbers, 
not entirely, but at least maybe there's one thought that I've, I've landed on. I don't know if it's beautiful, I don't know if it's horrible, but maybe one of the most important days of our entire lives, uh, it will be the day that we go, as so long as we're an organ donor. Because for a family like Brittany's or, or a family like yours or anyone's, that organ could be, it could be everything. One of the things that we always love to hear about, I guess, is that superhero story arc, right? And, and even as kids, we look into that screen and we imagine ourselves one day, like, if I could only do that, if I was given the chance, that's what I would do. I would do the right thing. I would save that life. The odd thing is, is that when a car crash happens, disease, an accident, that need for the organ, when it comes into reality, that could be the day that we, we wear the cape. So Brittany advocates for organ donation, but blood donation was a big part of their journey as well. So her commitment is also to raise awareness. Brittany and Ryan, they know that everybody can't donate organs, but you know what? A blood drive? How about one of those every year for Henry's birthday? For Henry's third birthday, we organized a blood drive and um, had a fantastic turnout. We had, you know, 17 people sign up to be blood uh, bone marrow donors. We had 46 units of blood collected. And this year we're having, we're gonna double that. And we are holding everybody accountable to that. So everybody that signed up last year, um, we're asking them back and we're gonna do it again and again and again and promote, you know, blood donation. And that's something I'm passionate about, it's something Ryan's passionate about. And that's our word. And, you know, our word is our honor. And if we say we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And we're going to do it big and we're going to do it well. And we're going to, you know, impact a bunch of lives and, and save a bunch of people. So that's what it's what's important. You know, our word goes so much more beyond just, you know, words in a sentence. It's our actions. It's our motivation. It's, you know, it's our livelihood in many instances. And that's why saying what we're going to do is important. Thank you so much for listening. This is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would. Uh, I'm here to ask you uh, something. Don't let this story just be some kind of emotional entertainment. I'm asking you of that favor. You heard the statistics on the need for organ donation, but I'm going to say it again. In 2017, 114,000 human beings were waiting for an organ transplant that's in the United States. And also in the United States, 20 people are dying every single day as they wait for an organ. Organ donation is so important to life that in some countries you are automatically registered as an organ donor. And you have to put in effort to opt out, not opt in. These are called opt out countries and the United States is not one of them. You have to opt in. That is the promise that Brittany and her family would ask of you. But the promise is for you to decide. Decide to make or not. That's the way they are. They've been that way since you were little Henry's age. It'll be that way until you go. Please visit organdonor.gov to sign up to be an organ donor. That's organdonor.gov. Start typing. That's our episode for today. 
If you like the Because I Said I Would podcast, well, then check us out on Facebook and Instagram. That's facebook.com slash Because I Said I Would. And our Instagram handle is at Because I Said I Would. There are a lot of promise stories that we're posting constantly. And you can even go in the backlog and check out some of uh, some of the stuff there. But if you want to see some of my favorites, I encourage you check out Because I Said I Would, the book. It's available on Amazon and directly through us at becauseisaidiwood.com slash the book. 100% of the proceeds that would come to me as the author instead go to Because I Said I Would, a 501c3 nonprofit. We have character education programs in schools, in prisons, chapters of volunteers that make promises to help their local communities. We've got accountability programs, awareness campaigns with Global Reach. I could go on. Uh, but I also want you to know that this is a listener-supported podcast. There's no outside advertising. You're not hearing any branding or commercial interruptions. We want to make these stories just about our supporters. But to do that, we need your help. Please go to becauseisaidiwood.com slash donate. Consider giving so that we can keep on creating great content that inspires others to do what is right. I encourage you to go to becauseisaidiwood.com slash donate and give today. If you like this episode, check out our entire podcast series at becauseisaidiwood.com slash the podcast. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, most other platforms as well where podcasts are found. And while you're there, if you wouldn't mind, maybe uh, give us a rating, a review. Special thanks to our producer, Julie Fink. Dave Douglas, our audio engineer. I am your host, Alex Sheen. And until next time, remember, a single promise can change a life forever. And behind every promise, there is a story.